Good morning, Wellington Church. For those who don't know me, my name is Vin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and if you didn't know, I've only been on the job now for, um, for two months. And so in two months, just so you know, I'm still on probation. So I'm still on my best behavior. If you thought I was offensive a couple of weeks ago, oh man, it gets worse when probation's over. <laughs> then the real me comes out. Uh, but this is what I'll say, Wellington Church. Um, my wife and I, we've we've really come to, to love you as a church and as a people. So we want, we want you to know that we, we, we love you. And um, anyway, emotions, ugh, yuck, let's move on. Um, so keep your Bibles open as we continue in worship in the preaching of God's word. So in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, we're gonna stay there for the whole seven verses. So please keep it uh, open. But let me start off by asking you a question. And the question is this. Have you ever been pulled over for speeding? I haven't, because I'm a pastor. <laughs> I don't do those type of things, but there was a one rare occasion when I was traveling at the same speed as everyone else around me, everyone else. And as I'm traveling at whatever speed it was, you know, you get to, the, you get to a certain place and a police officer jumps out of the bush and he points at you and calls you to, you know, go to the side. And I remember putting over, and my first thoughts are, what? Why me? I was going the same speed as everyone else. This is not fair. Well, the truth is, I was speeding like everyone else, and the police officer had every right to pull me over, right? I might not understand the reasons why I was singled out, but the police officer is in the position of power and authority to choose who to pull over. I use this illustration because today's passage is addressing why some get to understand the parables of Jesus and why others do not. We might not understand and it might seem unfair, but there's actually a reason for the decision that is made. So there are three points I wanna make in today's message, okay? So three points. The first point is know and grow. Second is spurn and turn. And the third is a blast from the past, okay? To humble. So know and grow, spurn and turn, a blast from the past. Too humble. Verse 10, let's start there. So last Sunday, uh, Pastor Ray preached the parable of the sower. So you'll find that at the beginning of uh, Matthew uh, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. But he also preached on the explanation of the parable of the sower, which happened in 13, 18 to 23. Okay, so he preached these two texts, the parable of the sower, and how Jesus explains what the parable means. But you know, there's, there's a middle section that was purposely missed out for this morning. But if you want to go back and listen to Pastor Ray's sermon, please do. So this morning, today, we find ourselves in the middle of the passage, in the middle of the, the, for the parable of the sower and the explanation of the parable of the sower. So I want to give us a friendly reminder of what a parable is. The parable comes from the Greek word, Parabole. And so basically, bole means the end of it means 
literally a throwing, a literally throwing of something, okay? Para means alongside. So when you put those words together, it means that a parable is a simple story thrown alongside a spiritual lesson to help illustrate a point, okay? So that's what a parable is. Going back to verse 10, we are told that right after Jesus tells the parable of the sower, the disciples ask Jesus directly, privately, why do you speak to them in parables? There are a couple of things to note here when it comes to the disciples' questions. The word parables is in the plural and not in the singular. This is an important note to make because to, when, when we get to Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, According to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has only shared one parable. But we know in Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus says, and he told them many things in parables. So even though the Gospel of Matthew has recorded only one parable, we can safely assume there have been, Jesus has taught in many parables in many times, Okay leading up to it. It's just a gospel of Matthew has recorded one so far. The next thing to point out is who the disciples are referring to when they use the term them. Who is them? In Matthew chapter 13, verses 34, Jesus says, all things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, and he, he said nothing to them without a parable. So Jesus would use a parable to the crowds and to those who were, who were just following, who were just interested, for those who were just like spectating, okay? So for those who were just trying to listen in, spectating, uh, trying to figure out who Jesus is, see if they're interested or not, he would tell them, he would talk to them in parables, but to the disciples, he explained all things. Which is interesting because maybe if Jesus made things clearer to every single person who was listening, maybe he would have a thousand followers and not just confused crowds. Look, I don't know if your family is anything like mine, but I have too many memories of when I would ask my parents if I could do or eat something, okay, when I was young. Let me give you an example. When I was young, when I had the nerve and the courage and maybe a bit of stupidity, I would ask my parents, Mom and Dad, can I eat ice cream for dinner? The answer was no. That was the end of it. But every now and then, with a bit more stupidity and a bit more nerve and a bit more courage, I would ask, but why? And you know what they would say? Because I said so. And then a confused and frustrated and angry look would come over, and I had to accept that answer. I enjoy it now as a parent, because I get to do it to my children and look at the frustration and, 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 and the anger towards them, like, ah, this is good. <laughs> Revenge is sweet. <laughs> but, the, but the idea is that because I said so, leaves us frustrated and confused. And we've got to accept those answers. And same goes for the crowds. But in verses 11 to 13, going back to the question of why Jesus speaks to the crowds in parables, leaving them confused, but takes out time to explain everything to his disciples, 
That's something that needs to be addressed. We need to find out the reasons why he does that. Jesus responds by saying to disciples, to you, and not to the crowd, but to you, to you, the disciples. So Jesus here is making a reference to his disciples. He's saying to you, to you who have given up their lives, to you who have, you've given up your lives to follow Jesus, to those who have forsaken all others to follow me, to give up their lives for me, to be formed by my teaching, to become disciples to you. But he makes a distinction that Jesus makes because we know the distinction is clear because Jesus could have said all. Jesus could have said, no, 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 I give all the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to all people. Not just to the distinction between disciples and crowds. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus ends verse 11 by telling the disciples that them, the crowds, it has not been given. So to you, disciples, it's been given. But to them, it has not been given. And then what we find, what we find in the middle of verse 11 in between the two distinct groups is the word secret. But if you're feeling the tension like I am when I'm reading this passage, you know what, I, it, it, everything sounds really unfair and even unloving. How can Jesus claim to be loving and not explain all things to all people? Wouldn't it be a loving act from God, from Jesus, to tell a parable and then explain it? Wouldn't it be easier to explain everything and have everyone understand and then everyone turn and follow you? Wouldn't that be easier and better? But let me tell you something about a secret. First of all, everyone loves a secret. And if you don't love a secret, I know you're lying. Come on, let's admit it. Let's look at all the gossip magazines. They sell like hotcakes. You know, when you, you know what happens when you go to the grocery store and you're lining up in the aisle? You know what's there besides the candy? There's the gossip magazines, right? We love it. We know shows like Entertainment Tonight, and TMZ, because we don't want to know the secrets of famous people. Well, if you don't, then how about, I know, you and I love the, 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 the local neighborhood gossip. We love to talk about our neighbors, especially the new neighbor who just moved into the neighborhood and just bought that house. And at evening time, because they just moved in, and even if they didn't move in, but you know you've got some houses during dinner time, some families, some neighbors don't have a curtain, so when it's dinner time, you see them prepare, you see how they eat, you look at what they're eating, because you want to know what they're doing as a family, what are they doing? If you're one of those people that stares into people's windows to see what they're doing and eating, stop it, it's creepy. But even my children, my children love secrets. They're only six and five, but what we do at the dinner table at my house is that they whisper to Laura's ear, my wife's ear, like they'll say something and they'll start giggling. And I'll be like, well, well I wanna know what a six-year-old child's secret is. And I beg them to tell me, and all they do is laugh in my face. <laughs> Look, the idea that Jesus is trying to give here about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, 
you've got to look at it differently. It's not like you're looking into your neighbor's trash. That's not what God is doing here. That's not what Jesus is doing here. The idea that Jesus is trying to give behind all this, this is the most important thing is, he's trying to tell that God has a secret. That's what he's trying to tell you. God has a secret, and he can tell whomever he wants because it is his secret to reveal or conceal. It's his secret. You cannot make him give it to you. You can ask him for it, but it is his prerogative, and it is his secret to reveal or conceal. That's the point he's trying to make. To the disciples who have been told the secret, they are encouraged to love God even more. Why? They're encouraged to love God more because in all of God's grace and mercy, God chose to reveal the secret to them. That should lead Jesus' disciples to be in awe and wonder of who he is. It should cause the disciples to ask the question, why me? Why would you tell me the secret? And then it should make them realize it has nothing to do with them. It's not because they were better than their neighbors. It's not because they were better disciples, they were good looking, they were rich, they were secure. It had nothing to do with that. That's the point. The point is, in God's infinite wisdom, grace, and mercy towards his disciples, he gave the secret. He chose them because it's ultimately about the creator and not the created. The other thing that a revealed secret does between God, who has the secret, and the disciples receiving the secret it simply creates more intimacy. When two parties share a secret that no one else knows, it naturally deepens the relationship, does it not? It makes the recipient thankful to the person or to God in the text who has revealed the secret to them, who has entrusted this secret. So it should deepen the love they have for the secret giver. For those today who, have, who God has revealed the secret to the kingdom of heaven, the Bible calls us to praise him. Praise him for his infinite wisdom. Don't sit there and ask why, he, why he chose you. You don't need to know why. Accept it, cherish it, praise him for it. Praise God for his mercy and his grace because we have not done a single thing to earn the secret, but he's freely given it to you. So now the question is, what is the secret to the kingdom of heaven? The passage today does not tell us, directly in this text anyway, what the, what the kingdom of heaven is, but we can assume throughout all of scripture, throughout all of the Bible, that the kingdom of heaven, first of all, is revealed to the person and works of Jesus Christ. Look, to put it simply, because of Jesus' life, because of Jesus' death and because of Jesus' resurrection, it reveals to us what the, what the heaven will be like 
under the rule and reign of Jesus. Let me give you an example. Let's take the Brazilian presidential election that just occurred. I've had a lot of, uh, I've had many conversations with our Brazilian brothers and sisters who attend Willingdon. First of all, I thank them for all their sharing with me when I ask maybe stupid, a stupid question, but I just can't help it. First of all, one thing I'll say about our Brazilian community that I love is they're, they're really honest. They're very direct and very honest. Maybe that's why we get along so well. But like other presidential elections, the most recent election in Brazil had two main candidates at the end. One was more to the right and one was more to the left. Both candidates that all my Brazilian Christian brothers and sisters would agree upon, and I've adamantly said that both candidates are far from perfect. But both have very distinct policies that they, that they would implement if they were to win. An example of that that I know of is that one of the candidates is for abortion rights. One is not. So the question then is, why do we care so much, even in our country here in Canada, why do we care so much about who we vote in? The truth is, we would all agree, because we believe as a people and as a nation, just like Brazil does, as whoever is in charge changes the everyday circumstance of the common man and woman, right? That's why we care about who we vote in. So going back to the Brazilian presidential election, if the candidate who supports abortion wins, then one of the many concerns for everyday Christian, everyday Brazilians is the slow moral decay of the nation. But if the other candidate wins, then the everyday Brazilian feels like they have no rights. And both can be true. Even though, if you didn't know, we, we know who has won the election for Brazil, the truth is no one really wins in the end. It is true that one might be better than the other, true. But remember that you're asking for an imperfect human to run an imperfect country filled with imperfect people. How can it end? What do we need? What does Brazil need? What does Canada need? We need a perfect king to rule and reign over every square inch of heaven and earth. Amen. And I only know of one king. And the only king I know that is perfect is Jesus. Amen. So what should we expect, is now the question, under the rule and reign of King Jesus, who is perfect. Well, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, actually gives us a glimpse of what it would be like if the perfect King Jesus ruled the everyday. And it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So what the Bible passage is saying in Revelation 21 is one day under the kingship of Jesus, death will die. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sin. Under Jesus, there'll be nothing, nothing but joyful praise of Jesus. That's it. But, they, but this is not just a di- something in the distant future about the rule and reign of Jesus. But there is a present reality about the rule and reign of Jesus. Because the truth is Jesus wants to be king of your life now. Not waiting for the distant future, but today. Jesus wants to be king over your emotions. He wants to be king over your finances. He wants to be king over your sex life. He wants to be king over your identity. Jesus wants to be king over all these things and more, not less. And if you would allow Jesus to rule and reign over your life, then Jesus would not, having Jesus rule and reign in life, it won't always make sense on this side of heaven because there's still pain and suffering. It all won't make sense. But if you allow Jesus to rule and reign, you will have peace with God. You will have peace with each other. And you will have peace within. So what about now the hard question? What about the crowds of people where the secret is concealed? So we just spent time about people where the secret is revealed. What about the people where the secret is concealed? What about them? First of all, an encouragement to the crowds would be Jesus is not just saying no to them. But for some, Jesus is saying not yet. For some. Let's go with the difficult question of then the no. Why no for some? Why would the secrets never be given and never revealed, ever? The simple answer is because some hearts do not want the rule and reign of Jesus. Why? Why don't people want the rule and reign of Jesus? Because if you're anything like me, and if you're realistic about the world today, deep down we all believe that we can do a better job of ruling our lives than Jesus can. Every day you and I make decisions based on us because we think we've made the best decision for ourselves and for our world and for our families. Every day. Um, For those who have heard me preach, you always get to hear about the things I hate. But today you get to hear about something I love. 
Finally, I love steak. <laughs> Give me medium rare, medium rare steak. If you have it well done, that's a sin. <laughs> medium rare steak with a glass of fermented grape juice. <laughs> I don't say wine because I'm a pastor and like, no, 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 no. But that being my favorite meal and drink. But if a doctor, if I was going to do my whatever it is, regular health checkup as a 44-year-old man, but if a doctor came to me and said, hey, Vin, you need to change your diet and eat vegetables, the first thing I would say to him is vegetables deserve to die. <laughs> but if the doctor came and pushed and said, look, Vin, listen to me, you need to change your diet. This is a matter of life and death. What would be my response? I'm going to have to change. The truth is, everything that Jesus says in Scripture is a life and death matter. Don't you find it interesting that parable after parable, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, but if you read Scripture, like parable after parable after parable, this one, the one before the parable of the sower, the crowds do not come to Jesus to ask him to explain anything. They are more than happy to walk away not understanding the teaching. There'll be you, some of you in the room that will be just happy to just listen to this and go back to your regular normal lives. And you're totally okay with not understanding a single thing, with not communicating with anyone, with not building community here. I can encourage you to not be like the crowds of people who just walk away and do not stay. Jesus wants your questions. So that's why it goes back to my first point that it's about you've got to know and grow. Know and grow. You see, in the gospel account of, of John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, in succession, it's a beautiful, two beautiful stories that I'm not going to read, but if you go back to it in your free time, in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, there are written two stories Two incidents between Jesus and actual a person. First is in John chapter three, it's about Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, a religious teacher, a religious sort of lawyer. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and asks Jesus to explain more. He wants to know and grow. Then in John chapter four, in the Gospel of John, you get read, you read about a story about a woman, a very, very broken woman, sinful, very sinful. And Jesus meets her in the well, and she keeps asking Jesus' question over and over again, and he dialogues with her and with Nicodemus. Both Nicodemus and the woman at the well talk with Jesus to gain knowledge. But they don't just gain knowledge, because it's not just about knowledge, but they know and grow. You get to see them act out their faith and live it out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, a former Oxford professor and Christian theologian, says this. I am a product of long corridors, 
empty sunlit rooms, upstairs indoor silences, addicts explored in solitude, distant noises of gurgling cisterns and pipes, and the noise of wind under the tiles, also of endless books. Church, my encouragement to you is that for every single person in this room, keep knowing and keep growing. Continue to read his word alone and with others. Read theologically rich books. Talk and ask questions about Jesus in life groups, in friend groups, in social groups. Learn from reading, learn from others, and learn by putting your faith into practice. Know and grow. This now leads me to my second point in verses 14 and 15. The second point is spurn and turn. In verses uh, 14 and, and 15 in Matthew, Jesus he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. I'm not going to read it for us, but they give you the context of the passage. What's happening in the passage is this God meets Isaiah in a temple. It's one of the most graphic and epic scenes in all of the Old Testament. It's, in, it's really intense. If you want to know how intense it is, I think the best book for you to read on Isaiah 6 comes from R.C. Sproul's book called The Holiness of God. It gives you this epic description of what it would have been like for Isaiah to meet God face to face. God calls upon Isaiah, this is the scene. God calls upon Isaiah to speak to the people and to tell them. He goes, Isaiah, go and speak to my people and tell them to spurn their idols. Tell them to hate and reject their idols and to turn from their sins so that what? As a context in Isaiah 6 goes, so that God would heal them as a people. But God knows, that as he goes on, God knows that their hearts are not moved. He's telling Isaiah, go do it. Go tell them, but they're going to completely reject you and reject the message. And so Isaiah naturally has to ask the question. He doesn't ask, what's the point then? What's the point of going if you know they're already going to reject you? He asks a very beautiful question in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11. He asks, but how long, O Lord? How long are you going to let their hearts be hard? How long are you going to keep preaching them and they're just not going to care? They're going to keep rejecting you. How long? How patient are you? The thought behind the question is, how long are you going to keep giving the people what they want? How long will you let them aimlessly worship their idols? How long will you let them believe that their sins have no consequence? How long, O oh Lord? You know what God's answer is? He says, until there is nothing left. That's God's answer. Until there's nothing left, there's going to be no people. But then God says, as he follows up with that comment, there will be nothing there, he says, but I will save a people for myself. I will save a remnant, a small group of people that will be my people 
forever. So my question for us today, to our culture, is this. Are we living in a time where more and more people will reject Jesus? Are we living in a time when the message of Jesus, the message that there's only one way to God, there's only one way to heaven, and that person, it's only through Jesus, and we've come to the point where that message sounds ignorant and full of hate? Are we living in a time where we rule and reign ourselves, that you were the king and you were the queen of your own hearts? Are we living in a time where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You know what? I think we live in a time where um, warning messages get out quickly now. Have you noticed on your phones, on your cell phones? Uh, it's, I found it interesting that if there's a missing child, right, in the province or even outside of our province, there's a text, there's a mass text messages. Have you seen those messages where it says emergency, missing child in this province, in this location, last seen, and they send it out. There's a warning message, and part of the warning is to tell you, hey, look out for this child. You've got important things like that, and then sometimes you might get messages of, you know, weather, whatever it is, it's snowing. But the basic principle of, like, a, a warning like that is for you to, like, readjust, Right? So if there's a warning about weather, it's telling you, okay, be careful on the road, slow down or stay indoors because a little bit of snow hurt everyone. But there are some warnings that are not followed, though we all agree about those warnings. You and I know it is illegal to use your phone while driving. It is even scientifically proven that distracted driving is really distracting. We have reports of people using their phones and getting into actual accidents, it's reported, and it's easy to gauge now, because they can see when you've used your phone when after the accidents happened. We know, we actually know of lives being lost due to, the distract, to distracted driving. Newer cars, if you don't know, newer cars with actual screens on them, you are not allowed to do or change anything during driving. So even car manufacturers have changed a lot of what's going on in new cars. And yet, with all these warnings, we know people who still use their phones while driving. Are we so addicted to our phones that we can't put them down for five minutes or whatever? Maybe. Are we afraid that the person on the other line of the phone will be so disappointed that you didn't reply in time? Do we have that fear? Yeah, maybe. Or are we a people who just have so much to do in so little time, we just need to get things done? Maybe. Or... Are our hearts just really hard? Maybe our hearts are so hard we don't want to change. Maybe because we're king of our own lives and our own time and our own energy and our own phone. I don't care what anyone says. This phone needs my attention right now. That's the most important thing because I am king. The, warning keeps, the warnings keep 
coming, but yet our hearts remain hard. Brothers and sisters, to my church family, don't, don't wait until you get pulled over and a police officer hands you a ticket. And worse still, don't wait for something worse to happen. As Isaiah was warning the people of his time, Jesus was informing his disciples the message remains the same. The message is repent and turn to Jesus. That's the message. He's telling the people of Isaiah, hey, soften your hearts, turn, and don't follow your idols, come before me. But Jesus is telling his disciples the same thing. Repent and turn towards me. So repent and turn is like, it's more, as I've explained previously, it's more about than just about ceasing to sin. He's not saying stop sinning. He's saying, yes, stop sinning, but also turn in the opposite direction and walk towards Jesus. That's what he's saying. This now leads us to our conclusion of verses 16 to 17 with my final point, which says a blast from the past to humble us. The word I would encourage you to underline or highlight in your, in your Bibles is the word blessed. The word blessed in the Greek, in the original language, it refers to God extending his benefits. So it's saying God has benefits that he extends and gives, okay? Every now and then, I will text Pastor Brody. If you don't know who Pastor Brody is, Pastor Brody is our senior high pastor. Great guy. Since he has no girlfriend, <laughs> and he's got, he's got all this money he can spend, I always, you can ask him, I always text him and say, bro, Get me, get me a coffee. He even knows my order. I don't even say anything now. I say, get me the coffee at Starbucks. And he knows exactly what it is. I should be more sensitive. You know, I should say, oh, sorry, are you in the middle of something? Can you get me a cup of coffee? I don't. I'm just very direct. Get me a cup of coffee. And I don't even say, I never say, yo, bro, I'll pay you back. I've never said that once. Look, the truth is this. Every time, every time I make that text and I send it out, Brody, every time, walks straight into my office, puts the coffee down and just walks, walks away. Maybe he's just disgusted about me. <laughs> but here's the point. The point is, Brody, Pastor Brody, he doesn't have to answer my text, but he does. He doesn't have to buy the coffee, but he does. He doesn't have to spend the money out of his own pocket to buy me a coffee that I get to drink. It's all an act of grace. And he delivers it to me in my office. Those are all his benefits that he has every right to keep to himself, but he chooses to share those benefits with me. So single ladies... <laughs> Sorry, I... I usually don't react when I tell a joke, but if you want a nice young man, woo, I don't know any other. <laughs> Sorry. 
But Jesus leaves the disciples with an encouraging reminder. So first of all, he says, blessed. You know, blessed are those who hear, who have seen, who have heard. So he's saying, God has extended these benefits to you. But then he reminds them with, a, with another point. So you're blessed that God has extended his benefits to you, even though those are his to keep. He gives them to you. But the second point, he, remi- he reminds them of their blessing is, remember all those who have gone before you, all those who have lived and have died. Remember those people, the prophets? What you have to remember for a first century Jew, when Jesus is telling his disciples this for the very first time, all these names would have conjured up in their brain, not like you and I. They would have thought of Abraham. They would have thought of Moses. They would have thought of Isaiah. They would have thought of Ruth. They would have thought of Deborah. They would have thought of Josiah. They would have thought of Micah. They would have thought of everyone. And Jesus is saying, all those people that you remember, that you've read about, that you've studied in Scripture, they wanted to see this day. They wanted to have this conversation that you're having with me right now. They, some of them died for it. And they knew with all their hearts that one day God somehow would crush Satan and destroy death. They didn't know how. And even when it was happening, when Jesus conquered sin and death, even for the disciples, it rubbed them the wrong way. They didn't like the cross. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Though they didn't know that ultimately God would conquer everything and show the secret to everything by his life, death, and resurrection via a cross. That's how we did it. And that's why I believe that God will come in like a new sheriff in town. And that's why we're encouraged to look back at the cross. See, we thank God for, the spirit that, for his spirit that we know that this truth, for a lot of you in the room, you know this truth. You know why? Because the spirit of God revealed to your hearts that were hard and softened it and then opened your eyes to see this word. It's God's work. There's a great TV show series called Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. If you don't know nothing about Sherlock, it's based on a, a, a book series from a very long time ago, but the show is based on the novel series called Sherlock Holmes. If you know nothing about Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock is a detective. And during the, especially the show, the detective, he, throughout the show, goes for about an hour and a half or whatever it is, and he pieces all these pieces together, all the clues. And as you're watching the show or as you're reading the book, a lot of it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would this clue be anything? It doesn't, nothing makes sense. Only when does it make sense? Only at the end. At the end of every show, you see Sherlock starts to explain why this piece of evidence comes together and why this one and why this one. This, and you sit there as an attentive viewer, as an engaged viewer, as though who is listening and asking questions and knowing and growing. You're like, oh, that makes sense. One day the cross will make sense. All those pieces will come together and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
But for now, let's put some of the pieces that we have together today. Some of those pieces are know and grow in our Savior Jesus Christ. Spurn the sin, hate the sin that so easily entangles and turn to your Savior who forgives. Then third, look back to Scripture and let it humble you because you did nothing to deserve it. But let me conclude of Jesus when he comes to take back his bride and what he is said in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. And that's how I'll conclude. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty appeals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. For those of us that you've been gracious to soften our hearts, to open our eyes, for you to give us the secret, the secret of your rule and reign. Jesus, we thank you. We didn't deserve it, remind us of that. But as by your grace, you give us that. But Jesus, help us not just to sit there and wonder why. Jesus, help us to be a people who have a secret, to praise you for giving that but also to be more intimate with you because you have entrusted us with that secret. And Jesus, for the rest of us in the room, whose maybe hearts are hard, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you soften hearts, heads, and hands? But also, would we be a people that ask questions, that poke, that ask the questions that nobody else wants to ask, And by your grace, would you answer those questions? So Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We know we are a blessed people. Because there's so many people that wanted to see the day of your death, the day of your life, the day of your resurrection, and the day of your ascension. So Jesus, we look forward to that day. When you, the bridegroom, comes back to take your bride home. What a joy it would be. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.